So I'm Melissa Herring. Tony and I pastor the church if you're visiting. Um, we are in the series, uh, open Eyes Wide Open to the Fight for the Family. Eyes Wide Open was our prophetic word for the year, and it's been pretty profound, actually, when the Lord gave us this word for this year back in early, I mean, late, it was late December, but we kind of launched it the first weekend of January. We couldn't have known how significant that this prophetic word was going to be for us. And as we close out the year, we have this, we really felt this from the Lord, um, that our eyes need to be wide open for the fight for the family. And you guys have, we've had incredible feedback. And each week we've been speaking to the men, to the women, to our husbands, to fathers. And this morning I get to teach to wives and mothers. But even if you're not a wife or a mother, you might be someday and you are a woman. And even if you're not a woman, I promise you this will apply to you. And um, you're going to get something from it. So, guys, I don't want you just elbowing the women the whole time. Like, see, see. Um, girls, I think you're going to be able to elbow them right back. Okay? Something that I love about people and the diversity of people is that every person has a communication style that is unique to them. Isn't that true? So it's just interesting. You talk to people and you're like, whoa, they communicate so uniquely. That's something that I love and having to figure out how you communicate with them with expressions and with their words. But I also love that every family has their own unique lexicon of language and expression. And maybe in your family, you know what I'm talking about. If you're around the Herring family for very long, you'll discover that our lives are a continuous series of inside jokes. Like just, we just always inside joking each other. We have strange, very, very strange wit in our family, uh, verbal and nonverbal communication and conversations. And maybe that's similar in your house as well. Tony and I can solve the world's problems with a few glances with each other, right? Maybe you can too. We have a lot of humor in our house, a lot of laughter. Um, we're a household of extremely verbal, quick-witted people. So every day it's like a competition for who's going to use the most oxygen. Maybe that's what your house is like too. And one of the places that I love to be together with my family, one of the greatest places of communication and building that is around the dinner table. And we've worked very hard in our family and been very intentional to preserve this time, about protecting this time. Not every meal, but I try to at least a meal a day. We are together as a family because that's such a sacred time. It's a biblical time too, guys. Breaking bread together is a very biblical thing. But I think we've lost this in our culture, in the American culture, of being super busy and being really convenient, you know, things being convenient, convenience foods. Um, we can find ourselves migrating towards the TV during dinner time or our kids go to their room or whatever. But for us, I'm like, even if it's a bowl of cereal, even if it's mac and cheese night, we're, I try to get us all around the table because that's an important time. We need to see each other's faces. We need to look into each other's eyes. This is where we get to catch up from the day. And if you want to transform your family life with one simple thing, get back around the table together. Get back around the table. I'm telling you, it's going to transform your family life. Now, you may think I have got everyone's, you know, despondent at this point, but I want to encourage you to do it. Get back around the table. Be intentional. We're familiar with Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. It's up on there. You can see, listen, O Israel. This is their Shema. And all the Jewish families would know this. And this will kind of thread through the sermon this morning. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
all your soul and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Lord was serious in his commands to his children to repeat these commands. Talk about them as you go. Repeat them over and over to your kids. But to be able to repeat these things over and over as we go about, when we wake up, when we're at the table, when we're going through carpool, when we're driving to the store, for us to be able as parents to, to do these things, to repeat, to talk about, we have to do what the word says is hide the word in our heart. We have to have the word in us for it to overflow because that's what the word says. From the heart, the mouth speaks. So we have to fill our own hearts, fill our own minds with God's word, and then watch how that flows out. I not only take each opportunity with my kids, I make opportunities with my kids to teach them God's word. I'm not saying, hey, kids, let's turn to James 4.10 right now. Um, I have done that. And it's not just because I'm a preacher. I love the word of God, and I've watched the word of God transform my life. I've watched the truth of God's word transform me. And I know that my kids need that. And anyone that I'm around, I want to do what the commandment says to repeat these things again and again, to talk about these things as we go out. So I take every opportunity, parents, take every opportunity to massage the word of God into your conversations with your kids, with your spouse, with anyone. We can do that. I can promise you the world is massaging things into them. The world is telling them things and we can't just think that, you know, coming to church once on the weekend or sending our kids to youth or going over to great summer kids, they're getting the word of God, but we have to be so intentional in the way that we sow the word of God into our kids. It's, it's essential you guys. Now I know that this is incredibly hard. We have four kids and our oldest is almost 21 and our youngest is 10. So we survived the circus years. Okay, it's super hard when your kids are young um, because life feels like this series of interrupted conversations, right? Do you feel like you ever have a solid conversation when your kids are little? And it's always half-baked thoughts, right? You're like, what was I thinking? What what was that I was doing? I know when your kids are little, you find yourself reduced to what's called neander parenting. And you may not know that you've done this, but you have. Look at this slide. This is what neander parenting is. It's a monosyllabic language utilized by parents whose kids are acting like Neanderthals. Is there anyone in the house who's utilized this very, very specific and succinct language? You know it's gotten bad and it's a little crazy in the house when, you ha- when you're saying sit, eat, food, right? I, we had three sons and a daughter and um, I, I feel like the first maybe 10 years of parenting was basically neander parenting. You know, uh, you, shoes on, like you can't even really get out a whole conversation or isn't this true? Uh, late car, go. How many, t- how many of you guys have left kids? We have. Um, once you get over one, once you have more than one kid, you're just going to lose them every once in a while. Teeth, brush, quick, bed, sleep. Now we just end up... Uh, just however we can get communication across, right? And at the table, at our, at our family table, Tony and I, um, we've just sort of been reduced because the kids are all talking so much. We're just reduced to pointing and grunting at each other now. Uh, okay. 
Like we don't even, we're, the kids are talking, so we're having a whole under the surface conversation just by pointing and grunting. He's like pointing. I'm like, oh, you need the salt? Nah, pass it back. Maybe your, your families are like that too. Just get a little grunty point and grunt. Our communication um, is super important to our relationships, but it's essential in our fellowship. And Pastor Tony talked about that last week with the men. The difference between uh, relationship and fellowship, we can have a relationship with one another just by the position that we hold in each other's lives. But there's something about fellowship. You know, communication is the sending and the receiving of information at its, at its just baseline. It's sending and receiving. But deeper still, when you think about what communication is in fellowship, it's the conveying of meanings. We're trying to convey the meaning of something, not just blast them with information. And we use gestures and signs and language and facial expressions. We use the tone of our voice, the volume or a whisper, Right? We're trying to convey this meaning. And Jesus was a master communicator, you guys. He lived out Deuteronomy 6. I don't know the last time you've read through the Gospels, but I want to encourage you guys to do that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. (coughs) Excuse me. He's using parables. And as he goes about his life, as he's teaching, he's using the things around him. And read it. It's like, whoa, it can seem so random until you realize he's walking through Israel And he picks up a grain of wheat or a dead branch and he talks to the people. And what he's doing is he's using the things around him to communicate and convey the message of the kingdom because he knows that we have incredible power. There's immense power in our words and the way that we communicate, right? There's power in the way that we talk to one another and the way that we relate to one another. And he never wasted an opportunity. He was always teaching about his kingdom, wasn't he? He was so intentional about that, and we're grateful for it. But unfortunately, sometimes what happens in our relationships is we will develop painful patterns and very painful habits of unhealthy communication skills, especially if you grew up in a family and and communication wasn't the strong suit. Maybe it was a lot of yelling. Maybe it was a lot of ignoring and passive aggression. Your communication skills may have really drifted into a place that they're not super healthy, right? We've counseled couples who may as well be speaking different languages with each other, like Greek and Hebrew, right? The patterns of communication have gotten so toxic in their relationship that it's difficult for them to even hear what the other is saying. And maybe you've been that way in your marriage or in a relationship before. They're talking and you hear one thing. But they've said something else. And we've, we've, we've experienced that. We've been mediators in these times of counseling with couples. And they, the man would say something and the woman would have heard it completely different. And we're like, no, he said this. You guys understand what I'm talking about? We just can get into these patterns of communication. In families, families with uh, kids and with teenagers, they can come to complete standoffs. They can come to this stalemate of communication to where they're not even communicating anymore. Maybe when you were a kid at some point, you realize I'm the, my, my parents and I haven't had a full-blown conversation since I was nine. And that happens. Parents will be like, yeah, I put them to bed. A teenager, they woke up an alien. I can't speak their language. It's like overnight. And kids are like fresh prints all day long. Parents just don't understand, Right? We hear it all the time. We were youth pastors for seven years. If we don't get on top of these bad habits in our communication, we'll end up cutting off all roads of communication. And some of you guys might be sitting here having lived that out. 
That communication between a loved one's been completely cut off because it had gotten so toxic and had gotten so unhealthy. I want to encourage you guys as parents, the parents in the room, I'm going to encourage you to be the parent, to be the adult in your relationships with your kids, all right? You've got to take some charge with gentleness. I want to remind you that of all the parents in the world that God could have given your kids to, he gave them to you. He gave your kids to you. Therefore, he's going to give you the wisdom and the understanding to parent your kids. If you feel like you've lost ground, if you feel like you're at a stalemate with your relationship and your communication with your kids, I want to encourage you parents, take charge. Get some help. Read, research, seek out ways that you can learn to speak your kids' language to get those doors of communication back open. We only have our kids in our home for a short amount of time. And we need to be intentional in the way that we relate to them and the way that we talk to them. I just think that there's, there's, um, that the Lord, there, there's always hope. There's always hope in our relationship. I think that some parents need to stop being afraid of their kids. They're afraid. You need to ask the Lord, what are you, why are you afraid of your kids? Why are you afraid to parent them? Why are you afraid to address them? Why are you afraid to communicate with them? Start speaking their language. Ask the Lord, give you wisdom to open that communication back up with your kids. It's possible. That's the hope of the gospel, right? He can restore. He can make things new. Unfortunately, by the time that someone actually reaches out for help, by the time someone says, I think we need intervention, we need therapy, we need counseling, we need pastoral care, something has taken hold in these relationships. And there are deep roots that get wrapped around everything. Communication can be on a total lockdown. And these roots that get wrapped around these relationships are anger. They're just anger. That's actually the title of my sermon. You guys will see it's uh, anger and the axe. And we've seen this happen so many times. There's so much anger. You know, I want to stop and clarify first that anger is actually a God-given emotion. Did you guys know that? God got angry. I don't know if you've read the Bible, but he would get angry. He was very passionate But there's a difference between holy anger or what I call righteous anger and unholy anger. Anger is not something that we uh, ignore. It's not something that we cast off. It's not something that we just try to keep a lid on. You know what I mean? Like I'm just trying to keep a lid on my anger. It's like any emotion and it needs attention and it needs management. We get angry. We can have a holy anger, right? Like that can have this holy anger and holy anger is what I call this righteous anger. And what it is, is when you're roused by an injustice or roused by evil, right? You can watch the news. You can see something deplorable that happened. I mean, you think about human trafficking that should rouse a righteous anger in our heart, a holy anger in our heart, but it must be accompanied by a sincere desire to see God's will performed in that situation. That's what makes it holy. That's how you can have an anger and sin not in that. And, and holy anger is both healthy Did you know that a holy anger can be healthy for you? We're so used to just feeling anger and thinking, oh, I shouldn't feel that. I shouldn't feel that. I shouldn't feel that. No, there is an anger from the Lord that we should feel because it's healthy and it's effective. And you want to know why? Because when we see an injustice and when we see evil, what that does is it rouses something inside of us and it pushes us from apathy 
which is a lack of passion, or it pushes us from our ignorance, which means I'm just head in the sand, and it causes us to take action. Do you know that we are meant to take action against injustice? We are. When we see inequality, when we see discrimination, these are things that should make us feel a righteous anger, that we want people to have their dignity. We want people to to have the basic things that they need. We should have protection. When we hear of people being trafficked, when we hear of kids being abused, we should have a holy anger. Something should rise up inside of us, but it has to be coupled with this sincere desire to see God's will in that person, in that situation, in that family, and we begin to pray, and we take action. We know we know unholy anger better, don't we? I think we're less, we're less familiar with holy anger, but we're more familiar with unholy anger. I referenced Ephesians 4:26 earlier. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Um, I memorized it as a kid. Uh, be angry and sin not, right? So there is a way that you can be angry and not sin, but unfortunately, our anger leads us into these sinful places. God places wise instruction on anger because he knows it's a powerful emotion, isn't it? Think about it. It is incredibly powerful. I read this quote earlier this week and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. Anger is a doorway through which the worst of your flesh proudly walks. Are we not at our worst when we are angry? I know I am. It's ugly. And you just think the worst of your flesh walks through that door. It's like once anger's there, then it just, you're like, well, just invite the whole crowd, right? When anger goes unchecked, it's damaging. It can ruin lives. It can ruin families. It, ru- it ruins friendships. And it's because anger begets abuse. I want you to stop and think about it. Unholy anger produces abuse, whether it's emotional, whether it's verbal, or whether it's physical, You know, when I was preparing for this message, I was really preparing to teach on communication because a lot of our questions that we got asked in our little survey was about communicating as as couples and as parents. But as I started reading and the Lord started to unveil to me what I really needed to bring, it was about this topic of anger. And I can promise you that it got whipped out in me before I ever got up on this pulpit of recognizing anger and what it produces in our lives. God is very serious about it. You know, many of us have been the victim of anger. If I were to ask you to raise your hand, I bet everyone in this room could say, yes, I've been the victim of someone's anger, someone's unholy anger, whether it was emotional, whether it was verbal, whether it was physical. But many of us have also been the abuser. We've been the ones that have been angry and we got verbal and we emotionally hurt someone, maybe even physically hurt someone in our anger. We're loath to admit that though, because it's one of those things we just don't want to ignore. We want to cast off. We don't want to think about it. And we hate it about ourselves that we get angry. We've been at this 21 years of full-time ministry, and I've so often sat across from moms and wives who hate that about themselves, that they get angry. And if we're honest, which I hope that that's what we come to church to do, is be honest. Most of us have a strong undercurrent of anger just below the surface. 
It's just right there, buzzing, buzzing with energy, buzzing with electricity, and any number of triggers can set it off like that. Before we know it, we've had a destructive outburst, and it left us and the people around us feeling weary and broken and often very hopeless. Am I in the right house? So I want us to look beneath the surface. I really felt like the Lord said, let's just get to it. Why are we so angry? But I want us to stop in this moment. And if you will, just close your eyes because we really, when we try to search out our own lives, we just fall short. So we want to ask you, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate in our hearts, in our lives, in the, in the, in the innermost places of our heart, God. And we want to ask, why am I so angry? Just make it personal and ask him. Why am I so angry? And maybe you're not, and praise the Lord if you're not. But most people deal with this strong undercurrent of anger. You know, the word tells us that there are roots of bitterness. And roots are definitely under the surface, aren't they? Hebrews 12, 15 says this, Look after each other so that, no, that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Is that not why we come to church so that we can look after one another? Is that not why we go to life group and Bible study and youth group and college group and hang out with our brothers in Christ and our sisters in Christ? Because we want to look after each other. I want to look after you. Tony wants to look after you. Your life group leaders want to look after you. Because we don't want anyone uh, to fail to receive the grace of God in their lives. And look what it says, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. And you know that that's what happens. It's a trouble to you, but that anger actually ends up corrupting everyone around us. And you can see here that that Greek word for bitterness means harshness and embittered, resentful spirit. Does that not profile an angry person? You might even have a thought in your mind of someone, maybe it was a parent or a loved one or a teacher or a coach or an employer, a boss, and you're like, man, that profiles them, a harshness, an embitteredness, a resentful spirit. There's so much anger. There's so much anger in the world. Matthew 3.10 says, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The Lord's saying he's already taken the axe. He's got it in his hand. I asked Tony when I was studying this week, I texted him. I said, hey, do we have a big axe? And he's like, yeah, we do. <laughs> and I was like, this is exactly what I was hoping we had. I don't know what we have usually. But this was exactly what I was envisioning the Lord having just at, in his hands, ready to take the axe to the root of the things that are in our heart that are not producing the good fruit I know that if you're here and when you go to church and when you go to life group and Bible study, and it's because you want the transformation of the Lord in your life, right? You want community, but you also want these permeating relationships and you want the truth of God's word to change you. We want, we want the ax to go to the root of these things in our heart, but we also need it, guys. We need this. It needs to be a practice in our life that anything that isn't producing the good, if it's producing bitterness, if it's uh, producing rotten fruit in our lives, we need the root, the axe to be taken to that root. It's time to take an axe, right? As I was researching this, 
just the roots of anger, because I felt like that's what the Lord said. We want to get to the roots of anger in the wives and in the mothers, but in all of us, right? This isn't just for the wives and the mothers, though this is a common, common, incredibly common thing that I talk to wives and mothers about is this undercurrent of anger. So I was researching it, and you can do it on your own. You can Google it. Whether it is secular or biblically based, I found three common roots. Three common roots that even in the secular world of psychology and sociology, they found these roots to be common. And then I I read them in in the Christian, like biblical counseling world. It's the same thing, right? So we're all created in God's image, whether you believe you are created in his image or not. So these are the three roots of anger and then the axes that the Lord has given us to cut them out. And the first one is this, it's shame. Even in the secular uh, research in clinical psychology, shame was one of the biggest triggers of anger in someone's life. It's unconfessed sins is what it is. And it creates this hidden sense of shame. Shame can be a major trigger, anger trigger, because when we harbor shame, look what happens. We tend to react defensively when we're criticized or given even mild feedback. We can simply be questioned and an outburst of anger is a result. Has anyone ever experienced that before? You can feel so much shame in our hearts that someone can just give us feedback. They're not even necessarily criticizing us. They can just uh, question, hey, did you do this? Cat claws are out, right? Because you're feeling this sense of shame. And then we take it further. We're feeling the shame. And then we use anger to divert attention away from our painful our hidden feelings of shame. This is the same way that a magician uses misdirection while performing a card trick. So he's over here using misdirection, but over here he's like doing the trick and he's deceiving us. We do that with each other. And I call this the shame and blame game. And this has ancient roots in the Garden of Eden. This is exactly what happened when the Lord, after Adam and Eve had sinned and disobeyed God and didn't believe him. And he's like, hey, where y'all at? And you guys remember the minute the Lord starts asking them questions, Adam starts shifting the blame. And this is what we, one way in our home, with our kids and with each other, this is one of the ways that we identify unconfessed sin, unconfessed shame in our house is when someone starts blaming. They start accusing. This spirit of accusation starts to rise up. Listen, watch for it. If you have a kid that starts getting accusatory and they're always blaming someone else, you can promise the old adage they're pointing at one person, but three fingers are right back at them. All right? And that's one of the ways that we do. We're serious about unconfessed sin in our house and making opportunities for our kids to confess and come clean. And it's hilarious because they are confessors. Our kids are confessors. But we had to foster that. You know why? Because we knew what shame does in people's lives. When we're hiding and we're in this sense of like, I don't really want to be seen. I don't really want to be known because of this unconfessed thing. And that accus- accusatory spirit and wives, a lot of you guys do that. You're accusing your husbands. You're blaming your husband for this. You're blaming your kids for that. But really, you have to ask the Lord, is the root of this anger actually because I feel ashamed? Is there something that I don't feel like I can have been honest about? 
that I haven't been vulnerable about. The acts that we take to the root of shame, the tool that the Lord has given us to drive that shame out is confession and repentance. I really feel like I ring this bell every time I'm up here because it is so powerful to do this. This is what changed my life, to confess and repent. When I learned what fruitful repentance was, it changed my life. I came out from under the heavy weight of shame. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And isn't that what we need? Isn't that what we're wanting? We want healing in our life. And Jesus is like, listen, I, I need you guys to confess these things. I need you not just to go to someone and tell them the things that, that you need to confess, but you need to pray for one another. This is what will bring the healing in your life. It goes on to say the earnest prayers of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Isn't that what we're truly after? Aren't we after wonderful results? Isn't that what we want in our, in our marriages and our relationships? I don't think any young bride while planning her wedding was thinking, I hope we fight every day. I don't think any young parents, as they're watching their firstborn, newborn, I don't think they looked at each other and said, I can't wait till he slams the door in our face. And it's funny that we'll settle for that. It's funny that we will settle. We have dreams and we have these God-given goals and desires for our relationships, and yet we'll settle for bitter fruit. And the Lord's like, look, you can take the ax to this. We want wonderful results, right? We have to come out of hiding. Do you know that when you confess your shame and your unconfessed sins, do you know that you dismantle the enemy's hold on you? That you get to dismantle that hold. And you know it's that hold of shame that's making you angry. We don't have to live this way. You know, Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Is that not what we need, the mercy of the Lord in our lives? We can go, look, we can run to the throne of grace. He already knows, right? God already knows what we've done. It's so funny that we will leave it unconfessed as though he can't see it if we don't talk about it. That's, we're like little kids, are we not? And he's like, I, I, I see that you did that, but you can run to my throne because I'm gracious. And guess what? Every time you run to his throne with an unconfessed sin, you receive mercy every time. Every time, like you won't run out of it. You can run to his throne of mercy and receive mercy every time. Humans don't do that for each other. We're like, uh, you know, you're not going to do that again. But God's like, come on, come on. I've got mercy for you. And then he's like, and then I'm going to give you grace to help when you need it most. I'm going to grace you. Ladies, gentlemen, we've got to come clean. We've got to come clean. If there's unconfessed sin in your heart, if there are things that are just causing you to carry so much shame, the Lord wants you to come clean because he wants you to be healed and he doesn't want you to have this root of anger in your heart. He's like, it's an easy ax to take. It's not heavy. Just confess, repent. The second one is this, it's pride. Pride's an interesting topic because... Um, we just want to skim past it. Like we don't really want to talk about pride too much. Pride can be a major anger trigger because when we don't get what we desired or expected, 
we tend to react out of our need to be fully in control or preferred. Anyone ever experienced this one before? (laughs) Pride is so broad, honestly. But pride at its core is really just self-centeredness. If we're just going to get real honest this morning, okay? Is pride not just ultimate selfishness when you think about it? I want what I want when I want it. Think about it. And when when we don't get what we want, when we want it, and our pride is so inflated, do we not get angry? Think about it. Think about it. It's like, what is this? You know, James says this in 4.1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? He just lays it out there. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have. So you scheme and you kill to get it. We really don't want it to get that far right. Nobody needs to be killing. But do you see how far pride will go when we want what we want? Do you see how angry pride can get? You know, I was asking the Lord through this, like, there are definitely seasons of being a wife and seasons of raising my kids that I'm not proud of, that I had angry outbursts, right? That I yelled or just was being ridiculous, irritable for no, for no good reason. And I was like, Lord, which is it? Which is it of these? And it was pride. And when it came down to it, it was just pride because I didn't like my life getting interrupted by the inconveniences of having to be a mom or you know, Tony needing something. And I was just so in my own head and in my own world, wanting to do my own thing, probably so overextended in one area and had failed to leave room for this area. And so a simple question from a kid like, hey, mom, can I have lunch? And I'm angry. Like, why would I be angry when a kid's asking me a question or when a kid needs something? I wasn't being present in that moment. And so I was just selfish, just being selfish. And my pride erupted because I wanted what I wanted. I didn't want them to inconvenience me. I didn't want them to mess with me. (laughs) Isn't that sad? Maybe I'm not in the right house. But pride is an inwardly directed emotion, right? And there's this inflated sense of my own self-worth, my own personal status, my own importance, right? Isn't that what pride is? And it's often easier to identify pride in our life because you may be sitting there thinking, you know, I don't know that I'm prideful, which is also funny. <laughs> like, no, I'm not prideful at all. Like, well, that's pride. But it's, it's easier to identify in our life, and it's also easier to define pride by actually comparing it to its opposite, which is what? What's the opposite of pride, class? Humility. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We often think that humility or the opposite of pride is like self-deprecation. It's just thinking awful about myself. That's like so wrong. That's not pride. I don't know what that is. It's just thinking of yourself less. Godly biblical humility is actually just being comfortable with who you are in the Lord. Right? Right? That's what humility is, just this comfort in who you are in the Lord. It's having an accurate estimation of yourself, and it's knowing that he's God and you're not. Did you know that that's a part of humility? It's just like, he's God, I'm not, I'm not God. This is why God hates pride. And you guys do know that, right, that the Lord hates pride? Did you guys know that there's lists of things that God hates? And they'll be like, six things the Lord hates. No, uh, seven 
seven things, Lord. We should pay attention to that, don't you think? Don't you think we should pay attention to the things that the Lord hates, that that, that the Lord gets angry about? We always want the uh, grace, 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 hyper grace of God, but we don't want to stop and consider the things that he gets really angry about. And pride is one of those things. We are flippant about pride. We're flippant about it. Listen to what he says in Psalms 10.4. These scriptures are up there. I'm going to fly through them. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. God hates pride because at its core, there's this misplaced sense of worth and entitlement. And you know what it's doing? It's echoing the old Babylonian motto. There's an old Babylonian motto. And it's actually the current mantra of our world today. And it's this, I am and there is no other. That is in stark conflict against what the word of God says when the Lord says, I am and there is no other. This is why God hates pride. It causes us, we, we have no room in our heart for him being Lord. Proverbs eight thirteen. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. He hates it. Proverbs eleven two. when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Boy, we know that, don't we? When our pride gets ugly and all the worst of our flesh walks through the door, does it not feel like a disgrace? Have we not disgraced ourselves and have we not humiliated the people around us because we've been so prideful? But with humility comes wisdom. Ecclesiastes 7, 8, patience is better than pride. In Isaiah 2, 11, God thunders out of heaven saying to all who are prideful, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You guys, we will either humble ourselves or God will do it. Remember, he gives, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We have to take the ax to the root of pride. We have to. And that acts is submission. That's what it is. It's having a submitted spirit. It's bending our knee to the lordship and the sovereignty of God. But this is not an achievement. This isn't human initiative. This is a response. Humility is actually a response to who God is, to his glory, and to his purposes. Humility is a posture that we take. It's just bending our knees. And you know that we can take a posture of humility in our relationships? That might be part of the problem. And the conflict that you might be having in your relationships is that you're lacking humility. You haven't bent your knees. And you haven't taken a posture of, I'm not God. I'm not in control. I'm not the sovereign one, right? Pride locks its knees, right? It gets its hands on its fists and it stands in defiance. And it's angry and it's hostile and nothing shuts down communication in a relationship like pride. Think about it. When's the last time you got in an argument with someone and they were being so prideful and you're like, I can't even talk to you. Isn't that true? You're like, you're not even hearing what I'm saying. It's pride. And we do that. You know, we can bend our knees in a willingness to be wrong. Do you know that's humility? I'm willing to be wrong. I think we're lacking that big time in the church and in our culture just to admit 
that we're wrong. We could be, there, there's a real pride at stake, I think, when, when people believed one thing about something and they were so convinced of it and they were going to die on that hill and they maybe found out later, uh, maybe I didn't have all the information, maybe I was wrong. But rather than have a posture of humility and say, you know what, I didn't have all the facts. I'm sorry. No, they stand defiant because they don't want to admit that they could have been wrong. Have you guys experienced that? I think we're experiencing that in the world. Humility doesn't have to be right. There's, there's a real place that you can get in your relationship when you're like, you know what, I don't have to be right. Tony and I, um, we were both very right early in our marriage. We nearly divorced because we were both so right. Neither of us really being willing, having a, a humility, right? Humility can own up to maybe not always being in control. Humility can be okay with not being preferred, right? And not taking it personally. I was thinking about this. Humility allows ourselves to be inconvenienced. That's hard for us. It's hard to want to be in, to allow an inconvenience in our life, isn't it? It's like, that's so inconvenient. You know, we should probably go out of our way more to be inconvenienced. Americans have gotten so used to just having everything the way we want it when we want it, right? It was funny. I was talking to my kids recently. We were talking about the year that we got. Tony and I are always 10 years behind on phones. We had razors up until like a few years ago, right? And the kids were like talking about, when did y'all actually get smartphones? And we're talking about, I said, guys, listen, I remember when we still had dial-up, right? I had to plug that thing into the phone jack. Y'all remember that? And that terrible sound. Who remembers that? You got, probably got to be over 40, actually, to remember that. And they're like, dude. And I was like, you had to wait. And sometimes it was busy. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's like, too many people are online. Okay, I'll come back later and check my email. Y'all remember that? And now we're like... Now, if it just buffers three seconds, we're like, ugh, why is it so slow? We get so mad, right? We've gotten so spoiled, rotten. You know, humility allows ourselves to be inconvenienced in our relationships and to just even say, you know what, I'm going to go out of my way to allow myself to be inconvenienced and stop hoarding my time and what I think I need. We can take the acts of humility to the root of our pride when we can concede when we can hand over control, when we can trust that the Lord sees, that he knows that our lives are in his hands, right? We can, we can submit. We can submit to him. We can be submissive in our relationships. The third one is this. It's insecurity. Insecurity can be a major anger trigger because when we harbor insecurity, we tend to react to a perceived threat to our identity, our competency, or our ability, or the lack thereof. I want to read that again. Insecurity can be a major anger trigger because when we harbor insecurity, we tend to react to the perceived threat to our identity, our competency, or our ability, or the lack thereof. Insecurity has become so common in our culture that we just wear it like another badge, like another Girl Scout badge. Yep, I got insecurity. <laughs> That's me. I'm just insecure. And I'm like, don't have to be. We don't have to be insecure. Do you know the more insecure people are, the easier it is for them to feel anger? 
the more insecure you are, because insecurity is so often related to feelings of low self-esteem that have come from rejection, they've come from fears of loss, they've come from feelings of inadequacy. That's what's, that's what's actually rooted in their low self-esteem is because of these things. People who are insecure often experience more fear. And the anger that we see when someone's highly insecure, the anger that we see is actually a response. It's a reactive protective measure to protect themselves. Not everyone who feels feelings of insecurity becomes angry. You can be insecure and not an angry person. But many do. Many people do. That's the root of their anger is their own insecurity. You may not relate to that or you may be sitting here with a light bulb going on like, oh my word. When insecurity goes unchecked, a deep inner frustration develops that takes the form of anger. Think about it. When we're insecure, we really begin to become frustrated that we're not this or we're not secure in that. We become highly irritable and always on edge. Wives, moms, are you hearing me? I've sat across the table from a lot of irritable women. Irritated, frustrated, insecure, always on edge. When we go so long feeling so poorly about ourselves, especially in comparison to others, which I preached that two weeks ago, we can start to resent the success and the happiness of others. Because we're so insecure. We can resent someone else's happinesses, their successes, and then it fuels a deeper frustration and a deeper irritation, and then we find ourselves not even able to have friendships, to have life-giving friendships. If we aren't secure in who we are and what God's called us to do as a wife, as a mother, if we're not secure in our identity, who we are as a child of God, we will seethe under the surface with frustration and anger and irritability. It's just right there. And the slightest provocation, and we'll erupt. The slightest question, slightest threat to our identity, to our competency, to our inadequacy, and we will erupt. We have to take the root of insecurity and drive that axe into it. And that axe, and it feels like such an oversimplification, is knowing who you are in Christ, ladies. Knowing, knowing, not just being a hearer of the word, but being a doer of the word. The key to living a secure life in Christ is knowing who you are in Christ. That's the key. You're like, yeah, 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 but what else should I do? You need to know who you are in Christ. You need to really, truly receive God's love for you. And you can base that not on your worth and your value based on what you do or what you can and can't do, but on who God says you are, who God says you are, right? Listen to Isaiah 54, 17. I read this out of the Amplified. Sometimes I like to read out of the Amplified because it's going to give you a lot of synonyms, a lot of extra words. If you like extra words, read out of the Amplified Bible. Listen to what he says. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, you shall show to be in the wrong. That sounds good, doesn't it? 
Any word that's spoken against you, any judgment against you, you get to show to be in the wrong. This peace, righteousness, security, triumph over opposition is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. If you've received Christ, this is your heritage. I want you to look at that again. As servants and children of God, it's part of our inherited, blood-bought right through our relationship with Jesus Christ to be secure. Women, you can be secure. You do not have to walk through your days on this earth as an insecure woman. Did you know that? Your blood-bought, inherited right in Christ is to be secure. You can walk as a secure woman in Christ. Men, you can too. It's not just a female issue. Insecurity is not just for weak women, guys. I think we all deal with levels of insecurity in our life. We are joint heirs with Jesus, so whatever he has, we get. Did you know that? Jesus is secure. We get to be secure, but we have to receive it by faith, which means that we have to believe it before we see it. Ladies, that means believing who God says that you are before you see the awesomeness in the mirror. You don't believe it when you see it. Well, Lord, when you make me awesome in all things, then I'll believe that I'm your child. You have to believe it and receive it by faith, right? And since, did you know, guys, did you know that we actually, this is what psychologists say, we believe what we say about ourselves more than what others say about us? Did you know that? You're, the, the, the narrative that you're having inside your own mind, you believe that more than what your husband tells you than what your kids tell you, than what the world tells you. So ladies, let your husbands off the hook. This, if he just did this more, if he, if, he, if he doted on me more, if he said this more, if he led me better here, listen, he could say it all day long, but if you don't believe it in your own heart, there's nothing he can say to you that's gonna make you feel more secure. You've gotta believe what God says about you. It's gonna transform your relationships, guys. If we're going to overcome these negative and defeating feelings that we have about ourselves, we've got to know that we know that we know what God says about us, who we are in Christ. You know where you're going to find that out? You're going to find it out right here, right here. You're going to find it in the word of God. Read it, get in there and see who you are in Christ. You've got to speak that over yourself. And do you know that you have to speak this over your spouses and over your children as well? Speak who they are in Christ, who your husband is in Christ. You know something that transformed my marriage was when I stopped focusing on the things that Tony wasn't and I began to proclaim and declare prophetically the things that the Lord said that he was. And I had to believe it before I saw it. And I proclaimed that and it shifted our whole marriage it let the poor boy off the hook for one thing. He can't walk no line. Seriously. And I was like, I'm just going to have to declare this. And you know that I do this over my children. I declare prophetically things over my kids. I've been praying Joel, that passage, that prophetic scripture in Joel, that Joel in the last days, that young men will dream dreams and old men will have visions. He's going to pour his spirit out on his sons and our daughters. And they're going to prophesy. Well, guess what? I was like, I think we're in the last days. I'm praying that over my kids. Do you know I've been declaring that over my children? And a few weeks ago, Cannon said to me, and I've been praying this actually for a while this year, because I was like, we in the last days. 
And Cannon, our middle boy, came to me a couple weeks ago. He's like, man, mom, something weird. And he's been telling us this over the last couple of weeks, like almost every day. There's just something weird happening. Like, I'm knowing things, like before they're happening, like in people's lives. He's like, and weird stuff. I wish I could give you all a bunch of examples. Like almost every day, there's something. He said he was walking by someone recently, and he was like, he knew exactly what it was. And he goes, hey, are you sad because, and the guy was freaked out because he knew it. And I'm like, that's right. That's because I've been praying Joel over you, buddy. (laughs) Praying and speaking the word of God. Who they are in Christ. I pray that over them. I'm not every day, you know, before they go out the door. Hey, everybody. Who are we in Christ? But I'm speaking that and I'm believing that in my own heart, right? Moms, we have to stop projecting our insecurities onto our kids. Stop projecting what we're insecure about on them and start projecting the security of the Lord over our families, over our spouses. This is our right, our inherent right because of our relationship with Jesus. There are so many more triggers just in closing, you guys. I wish I could have spent more time. But I think you know, I think the Lord's revealed to you what are the things, what are my little triggers that are so easily pulled that cause anger to erupt in my heart producing fruit that I don't want in my life. I think disappointments is one of those. I wish I had time to really unpack that. But if you've been living in a season of just one disappointment after the other, right? You're just disappointed. Like just things just continually aren't working out the way you hoped and dreamed. Disappointments can trigger anger. People can live very angry because they're disappointed. The word says that it, it makes their heart grow sick. And anger can be a byproduct of that. We hit on this a little bit. Fears. If you're living with a lot of fear, you're volatile. You'll be angry because everything feels like it's triggering that fear. I want to hit on this a little bit. Physiological or chemical imbalances, lady, we are swirling, right, with hormones, chemicals and things. But God knew these bodies. He knew we were going to be on cycles, He knew we would have child-rearing years. He knew we'd be all premenopausal and menopausal and postmenopausal. He knew all of that. And if he knew and he made our bodies, then he's going to grace us to be able to live holy in these bodies. And our cycles and our imbalances don't mean that give us permission to get to be mean. Tony finally confessed that yesterday morning after 26 and a half years. He's like, yeah, babe, those first few years, it was bad. And I'm like, it was? (laughs) I knew it was. It was awful that it was so, it was just crazy. Young, hormones just everywhere. This morning I was asking the kids, so which of those, shame, pride, insecurity, which of those? And we were talking about it and we asked dad and he said, hunger. Hunger is what actually (laughs) triggers my anger. And I'm like, that's legit. That's a legit one. Hangry, right? Hunger, but just eat more then, okay? Eat when you should. I really felt like I wanted to invite a time of ministry for the women. We want to actually kind of lower the lights a little bit because I really felt like the Lord said, I don't want us to just be hearers of the word. I want us to be doers of the word. So I'm actually going to invite the women in the room to stand because I think it's important for us to act upon the word of the Lord, to respond to the word of the Lord. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or do anything, but just to to stand. And we want to ask the Holy Spirit 
Would you investigate our hearts? Examine our lives, Lord, like the psalmist said, see if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, you said you desire purity in the innermost parts. So we're asking now, Holy Spirit, we really do want to take the acts of your word to these roots that might be causing us to live in anger that have cut off communication with our loved ones because we're volatile. So Lord, we're asking, would you show us if there's any shame, if there's anything that's been unconfessed in our hearts, Lord, we know first and foremost, we can come to you. We can give that to you, Lord. We know that we will find mercy and grace, that you are faithful and just to forgive us. Lord, if there's any woman in the house this morning or at home that's listening, God, if there's anything that's remained unconfessed, Lord, I pray they know that they can come to you first and confess and be healed in Jesus' name, that you will forgive, Lord. And I pray that they will go to the safe people in their lives and confess these things that the enemy has been holding over them, binding them up in guilt and shame, Lord. And I thank you that your declaration is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for any women or men in the house right now who, Lord, have harbored this sin and felt such shame for this sin, Lord, thank you, God, that there is no condemnation, that you are faithful, you are just, and you forgive. So we ask God that shame would be gone right now in Jesus' name. And that trigger, that root of anger because of the shame that they've carried would be gone. Just like that. Gone. And Lord, if there is pride, if there are things that just because of our pure selfishness, because we just needed to feel like we were in control or that things needed to go our way or as we expected or as we desired, Lord, we're asking for a posture of humility in response to your sovereignty, in response to your lordship, God. We're saying now we confess that pride, take the axe to the root of our pride. We do not want to be angry any longer because of the pride in our hearts, Lord. We Confess now that you are Lord, you are Lord, you are Lord alone. And we trust you with our lives, God. Root out that pride in our hearts, Lord. And if there's insecurity, God, may we know now by the power of your word who we are in Christ, that our inherited blood bought right in Christ Jesus is to be secure. I speak security over every woman right now in Jesus' name. Secure in who they are. Secure in the fact that their sanctification is a process, Lord, that they are on a journey, God. That they are on a journey and that you are gracious, you are compassionate, you are slow to anger, you are abounding in love in their life, God. And they will receive right now the security in knowing, God, what you say about them and you love them. You call them daughters. That they would know and discover more each day as they read your word who they are in Christ, Lord. So we thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much that you don't leave us alone. You come after us. You leave the 99, the scripture says, and you come after us, Lord. We are grateful. So now in just a posture of receiving your truth, Lord, we say thank you. Thank you that we do not have to live angry, irritable, frustrated lives, but we can be at peace with you, at peace in our hearts. And we pray blessing over our marriages and over our families. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.